I found after a while that the communication with Lauren was a lot easier when I was more hopeful. It was at the times when we would joke, when we would laugh about things, when I would get excited about something that was happening with one of our kids, when I was walking um, our dog and enjoying being outside and watching a movie that I loved. That's when Lauren really, I, I know, enjoyed and was present because she really, really, really wants me to be as happy as I can possibly be while I'm here. And her feeling about all of this and the way she communicates it to me, which is, you know, honey, physically I'm not there and I know that's a challenge, but that's the only way I'm not there. That's the only way. I'm here, I love you, I see you, I know what's going on with you. I'm here. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado, and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound, and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of sacred journeys, spirit encounters, near-death experiences, angels, mysteries, marvels, and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary people reveal their extraordinary encounters. I acknowledge the Darawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land of Sutherland Shire in Australia, where I live and record Spirit Sisters, and I recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and community. I pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado. I have a very exciting treat for the movie lovers today and anybody else who loves a good love story. My guest is veteran Hollywood producer Stephen Simon, whose distinguished career includes the development and production of unforgettable films such as Smokey and the Bandit, The Goodbye Girl, All the Right Moves, Somewhere in Time, and the Oscar-winning What Dreams May Come, starring Robin Williams. For 16 years, Stephen also ran the Spiritual Cinema Circle, exclusively dedicated to distributing spiritual films to a global audience in over 70 countries. And he's also the producer and director of the film version of Conversations with God, based on Neil Donald Walsh's best-selling book series. Stephen is joining me on the show today to share a profound message about hope and the indestructibility of love. On January 3, 2018, his lovely wife Lauren passed away in her sleep, aged only 54. Stephen was plunged into desperate grief, but it wasn't long before Lauren began to communicate with Stephen, and in October of that year, they began to write a book together. It's called What Dreams Have Come, and it's a stark and beautiful testament to the truth that love never dies. I want to thank my friend and fellow podcast host, Karen Swain, for introducing me to Stephen, who shares his story with such an open heart and enthusiasm to remind anyone whose loved ones have crossed to know that after life, there is more. To quote the ad line from his beloved 1998 movie, What Dreams May Come. In our conversation, we discuss all the amazing parallels between Stephen and Lauren's love story and Stephen's key films, 
Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and What Dreams May Come, both of which focused on the enduring love between a couple on opposite sides of the veil. You're about to hear how his movies played a crucial part in making certain that Stephen and Lauren, twin flames, found each other in this lifetime. Theirs is such a magical love story, no doubt worthy of the silver screen. I'm so honoured that Stephen shared it with us today in a broad-ranging conversation that also touched on the dazzling days of the golden era of Hollywood cinema, Stephen's early memories of seeing his father's spirit, his mind-blowing first communication from Lauren after her transition, the life-changing advice his good friend Neil Donald Walsh delivered when Stephen was in the depths of grief, and the powerful sense of life purpose that drives him ever onward. There's much more. Just wait till you hear who Stephen's godfather is. Lastly, please note that our conversation touches on themes of suicide. If you need support, call Lifeline in Australia on 13 11 14 or please seek out services in your country. Enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Stephen Simon. Hello Stephen, welcome to Spirit Sisters. Thank you, Karina. Good day on you. Good day. It is so wonderful to have you. I'm so very honoured, actually, to have you on the show today. This is just going to be such a beautiful conversation, and I know it's going to resonate in so many hearts today. So thanks for making the time, Stephen. Oh, you bet. I'm I'm very happy and, and honoured to be here, so thank you. I would have uh, already let our lovely audience know all about you in the introduction, so I am going to just get straight into your amazing story. Your, Wonderful. Great. Your your beautiful wife, Lauren, passed from the physical on the 3rd of January, 2018. Nine months later, she began communicating with you, which is, oh my goodness, this is the crux of our story. Now, could you please share with us, Stephen, that first communication breakthrough? You describe it so beautifully in your book and the effect that you it bet. had on you in, your, in that grief-stricken state that you were in. Absolutely. Well, actually, um, it was six weeks, not nine months. But nine months, it took us nine months before we decided that we we're going to write the book together. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but it was six weeks after she transitioned. And I need to go back a little bit. Please. Um, and talk about what our relationship was like and the spirituality that we share and what it is still like. But um, when Lauren was still physical, Lauren is an intuitive. Um, she's a Reiki master. Um, she used to do hypnotherapy for people. She worked with uh, women that had eating disorders. And, you know, she wrote a book on caregiving. So Lauren and I were very, very, very deeply connected and very much of the same spirituality. Um, she was also in the physical, and she still is on the other side, <laughs> a very gifted intuitive and it was very strange living with an intuitive because there would be times, like I remember vividly once, she said, hey, you haven't heard from your friend Michael in a long time, have you? And I said, no, I haven't. She said, I think he's about to call. And the phone rang. Uh, this happened all the time. It, it happened all the time. And it was fascinating and wonderful for me. When we talked about our relationship, we both, because Lauren was 16 years younger than me, and I can hear her saying, it's 20 now, honey. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we talked a lot about what would happen. Um, we certainly anticipated, both of us, that the first person to transition would be me. 
And we talked about how that would be. We had a very specific vision of the afterlife that we would live. Um, There were moments when she would be channeling things and um, say, you know, we really need to design this afterlife um, uh, setting that we're going to be in, what we're going to be, how we're going to be, how old we're going to be. I will always feel that Lauren knew something was coming uh, just because of the way she behaved the last week. She was very insistent that we spend a lot of time alone together and she would curl up in my lap at night. She had become very, very weak from the radiation treatments that she had to take for thyroid cancer, which she had and had two surgeries. She got over the thyroid cancer. She never got over the radiation therapies and uh, it weakened her terribly. And I was very concerned about her. On the 3rd of January, I went to the gym in the morning, as I usually did in the early morning, and I came back, and she was still sleeping, and uh, which was not totally unusual because I knew she had stayed up later than me the night before watching television. But after a while, I got very concerned, and I went into the room, and as soon as I walked around the bed and saw her and saw our lab Lola cuddled up next to her, I, I knew something was terribly wrong. And I touched her and she was very cold. And it turned out that she had had an undiscovered heart arrhythmia. And as um, the medics who came and uh, the doctor and everyone else said to me, you know, look, it's very peaceful when that happens. They just go to sleep and they don't wake up. And um, I, I heard the before and after that this is basically how angels who have come to earth transition when they go back. And it was very comforting to me and to our family, but it was still an incredible shock to me. I went into shock. I don't remember much of that day. And the next few weeks were a complete blur because we had talked about connecting as soon as we could. We have dear friends who are mediums and intuitives, and I was told a lot that she actually, when she transitioned, it took her a while to realize that she had transitioned because she thought she was dreaming. When she did, obviously the first, her first thoughts were of, of me and the kids. And I did everything I could to be in touch with her. And I had absolutely no success at all. I mean, I knew that she was, her spirit was not there. And I, I was so sensitive to Lauren's energy that I knew when it was there and I knew when it wasn't, um, I mean, later on, I really knew it, but she was not there. And there was a night, February 9th, 2018, I was watching a, um, a recording of a television show that I had recorded and I never, and I mean, I never on watching series television, I never watched the end credits and I never watch the coming attractions because they always spoil what's about to come. And I want to be surprised. But as the show ended, I so vividly felt and heard, although not with my ears, and I'll talk about that in a minute, Lauren's presence. And I felt and heard her say, honey, watch the end credits. And I was like, is this really her? Watch the end credits. Why? And 
I thought, okay, well, I've never done this before, but I hope this is Lauren. I believe it was, and I believed at that moment that it was. And I watched the end credits, and I put the lyrics of the song in the book that was a very special song for both of us that was very much about our love surviving, that we were going to be together again, that um, we would walk in the rays of a beautiful sun together. And I knew it was her, and that is when the communication started. The way I, I explain this to people is that I did not hear her voice, which would have been impossible because Lauren's physical remains were cremated. Her voice is a product of her body, and there was no way that I could actually physically hear her voice, but I heard it in my heart. And I felt it strongly. That began a lot of communications. And it took me a while to believe that I wasn't deluding myself because I so desperately missed her, so desperately wanted to be in touch, knew that we would be because we had talked about it so much. But I still wondered, am I making this up to comfort myself? And that began all of our discussions over the next several weeks and months. And those are all laid out in our book, uh, and particularly the early ones. And I also became very aware it was Lauren because of her sense of humor and because of the fact that she was teasing me, which was one of the, she sent me a card once many years ago saying, teasing you is my greatest joy and you are my greatest love. And she teased me all the time. Well, she started doing it from the other side as well. She made me laugh, and those started those connections which were precious to me. The way the book came about is a, a kind of a wonderful, amazing story, uh, which uh, we also laid out in the book. But in September of 2018, which was nine months after she had transitioned, I went to, I was living, I live in, outside of Portland, Oregon. I went to Ashland, Oregon, where I used to live. And where my dear friend Neil Donald Walsh lives, and um, I know you know me. Have you ever interviewed Neil? I haven't, no, but I've read his books, and they're just, they're life-changing, aren't they? Yeah, he, and Neil wrote the Conversations with God books for um, listeners that don't know Neil. And uh, Neil is a very dear friend of mine. I, I produced and directed the film version of Conversations with God, and Neil is very, very close to me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to interject here, put in one thing. There was a, a moment very early on after Lauren um, had transitioned, when I was um, hysterically crying, those, those moments lasted for almost three years. Uh, they don't outlast, they don't, don't happen as much now, but they still happen. Then I was hysterical. And I called Neil one night and I said to him, I couldn't talk for a while, but finally when I did, I said, Neil, I'm out of my mind with grief. And he said, good. And I was like, what? And he said, good. You need to be out of your mind and in your heart. You know, your mind is going to confuse you. Your heart, you now you need to speak the language and hear the language of your heart. And that fits into so much of the work that I've done, which I know that we'll get into this. So I went down uh, to have dinner with Neil and his wife, M in Ashland at the end of September of 2018. It's important to note here, and anyone can check this if they want, because 
this was an extraordinary night, and you can check the weather and see what it was like. So Southern Oregon had had no rain for months. They were having a drought. It was terrible. We were having dinner. I was facing the windows into the street. Neil and them were sitting across from me. And at one point, Neil said, well, you know, talk to me about what's going on. And I said, you know what, Neil? (laughs) This is going to sound familiar to you, pal. I've been making a lot of notes about our conversations, a lot of notes. I have scores of yellow pads already filled up, and I have a feeling that this may be a book. At that very moment, there was a lightning strike outside. Uh, There was thunder. It was amazing. And everyone in the restaurant looked around, and we looked at each other and like, okay. And then Neil said, and I know what the title should be, Another lightning strike. I said, what? He said, what dreams have come? Another lightning strike. I then said, well, I better get to writing the book, the fourth lightning strike, at which point we knew we were very much not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) And then I said, but you know what? I'm now getting the sense that this is a book that Lauren and I need to to write together the fifth and last lightning strike. Well, needless to say, we, we were completely blown away. We were laughing, we were crying, and we spent the rest of the dinner talking about that. I came home, connected with Lauren, and she was like, you know, let's do it. That began, and it took us about almost two years to get it done. And that's how I started to connect with Lauren, and that's how we wrote the book. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing the story about the lightning strike. I was hoping you would. And I loved reading about that in in the book. It's just what a moment. Like It's really quite unfathomable, isn't it? Also great that Lauren and, you know, uh, our higher selves got us, got me to Ashland to be with Neil because, you know, that's how conversations with God started. You know, Neil started having these conversations and started writing them down just for his own sake, for having a diary. And then all of a sudden realized this is going to be a book. That's exactly what happened. And it's not an accident then that it happened when I was with Neil. Uh, The universe at times really doesn't hide things very well. And it was like, okay, Stephen, you may need the two by four approach here. So we're going to put you in a place where you're going to start writing this book with your wife and do it quickly. And I did. And that is just one of many amazing instances of synchronicity in your life. And we are going to talk more about all of that and the parallels with your amazing body of filmmaking as well. But before um, we do get into that, I'd just like to backtrack just a moment to that initial communication from Lauren with the end credits. So just to clarify, Stephen, so it was a beautiful song that referenced the enduring power of love that was playing over the credits. Is that right? Correct. Do you remember the name of the song and the artist? It's in the Goodness, I thought you were going to ask me that. <laughs> you know what? It's in the it's book. It's in the book. I'll check it. <laughs> it's in the book, and right now I'm completely blanking on it. That's all oh, right. Oh, child. It's oh, oh, child. Oh, Things are going to yeah. get easier. Things are going to get better. Uh, now I promise I will never sing again. L- Lauren was at me if I started singing. It's like, no, 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 no singing. But that's what the song was. And what really struck me was the lyric, we'll walk in the rays of a beautiful sun someday when your heart and your head are much lighter. Wow, that is really goosebumpy, isn't it? Yeah, it really, 
And it wasn't like that wasn't our song. I mean, it was a song we both love, but it wasn't our song. But what really was extraordinary to me about that was that she obviously, in some way, knew that that was happening and knew that it would be comforting to me and it would tell me it was her. And there's a real and sense that she was waiting or, or just, you know, vigilant for that initial opportunity to get through to you and she made the most of what was, the you know, the tools, whatever you had present in your life at that moment and created it. It's, it's quite lovely. Yes. Yeah, it made it easy for me, which, you know, was that that is something that Lauren has always done. She makes it easy for me. And then you played your part by resisting that initial impulse to turn off the, the show at that point, which is what you always used to do. Yeah, well, because I, I certainly wasn't going to wasn't going to ignore something that I thought might be Lauren. Mm-hmm. And obviously, after I heard the song, I, I knew that it was. And that started all those conversations, which we which we put down in the book. And I think readers will also find find Lauren's sense of humor kind of fun. Yeah, as you say, so many more messages began to pour in and we're going to talk about some of the topics um, a little later on as we go on. First of all, I just want to touch on the absolutely intriguing parallels between your experience with Lauren and the plot lines of two very successful films that you've produced, which uh, we've given readers a clue, or oh, sorry, readers, <laughs> the old journo coming out, our listeners a clue to that with your mention of what dreams have come. Of course, you produced 1998's What Dreams May Come, the beautiful movie about the afterlife and the love, the enduring love between a husband and a wife in the afterlife starring Robin Williams that so many of our audience will remember. And there was also 1980's Somewhere in Time, which is a lovely film. And I have to confess here, Stephen, that I have had it on my list to watch for years. And I don't know why, like many amazing things that I need to read and watch, I just haven't gotten there yet. Unless I watched it as a kid and I can't remember. But um, so I really want to see that. And that one is about time travel between a man and a woman who come from different different eras in time, but yet they they find this connection of love. So I just wonder, at what point did you acknowledge these parallels and what did you make of it all? Well, it's, yeah, it has been an, a, a really, truly amazing journey. And when you, when you go up to 10,000 feet and take a look down and see how this has all evolved, uh, you know, climaxing in this book that we wrote together, this is obviously why I'm here from a, from a contribution, what I can contribute standpoint, you know, that, mm. that doesn't include my family and, and things like that, which is another major reason I know why I'm here. But when I go back and look at my life, I was born in a family where my father was a producer and a director uh, and a studio head in the 1940s. And he made, his best friend was Milton Berle and Abbott and Costello. He made a lot of big comedies. Um, he made some wonderful films, Judy Holliday's movie that she won an Academy Award for. And he also was working on From Here to Eternity when he suddenly died at the age of 51. Oh, my goodness, Stephen. Uh, oh, that, sorry, I have to interrupt you because From Here to Eternity as well, you know, it's all in the title there as oh, well. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> and there is a... We're not going to get into that today because it's not part of this conversation, but the whole from here to eternity aspect 
is what caused Frank Sinatra to come into my life and to be my godfather, um, which wow. he was. It was because of From Here to Eternity and my dad. That's a different story that has nothing to do with the spirituality, but a wonderful uh, experience in my life. When I look at that, that I came into a filmmaker that my dad died very suddenly right before my fifth birthday, my mother remarried another film producer. So I came into this life to do film. There is no question in my mind. I did other things. I was a lawyer very briefly. I hope nobody holds that against me. It's been a very long time since that time. It's been over 45 years. But when I read a book called Bid Time Return, I just realized that was the moment I needed to get into the film industry. And I always knew that I would. I was 30. I went and begged a wonderful producer named Ray Stark for a job. Uh, he gave me the job. The first thing I did was call the agent for the author of Bid Time Return, who turned out to be my spiritual mentor, Richard Matheson, who had written about a third of the old Twilight Zone episodes. Oh, wow. um, he wrote Legend. He wrote The Incredible Shrinking Man. And he had written this book, Bid Time Return. And I got in touch with him. We had lunch. And I said, I'm just getting into the business, but I need to make this as my first film. When I read that book, I was told very clearly uh, by my higher self, this is your first film. you got to get after it. And I did. So we made Somewhere in Time. Somewhere in Time is about a man who falls in love with a portrait of a woman who has been physically dead for decades. And he goes back in time to find her and to meet her, and they fall in love. And at the end of the movie, they are separated again. He transitions, and then they, the last scene in the movie is they are together in the afterlife. So that was my first film. When we were prepping Somewhere in Time, Richard gave me the novel, the, the galleys for his next novel, which was What Dreams May Come. And I read that book and I said, we'll make this one after Somewhere in Time, but it's going to be tough to get done. I had no idea. It took me 20 years. That is a journey in and of itself, but what is what dreams may come about? It's about a family that loses their two children in a tragic accident. The wife tries to take her own life. Um, he saves her. The only reason she is even alive is because of her love for him, and then he dies. This is not a comedy, obviously, and goes looking for her in the afterlife. And is told that she is in a very different place. And we went through all kinds of things about suicide and things like that, which, again, uh, that's another conversation. But they do find each other, and um, they reconnect, and um, they're together at the end of the film. There's no question that those two films and doing the, the conversations with God, uh, the, the, the film version of that, I did a little movie about indigo children. You know, this is what I came here to do. And I also co-founded something called the Spiritual Cinema Circle. And we actually had a lot of subscribers in Australia for that. It was 16 years of sending out four movies a month that were very spiritually oriented and uplifting to our uh, subscribers who were all over the world. So when this happened... With Lauren, um, I, I, I really felt that my whole life had prepared me for this. 
And um, now that we have written the book and it's out there, that is my last project. I'm now 75. The only thing I'm going to focus on now going forward from that standpoint is getting the book exposed to as many people as we can. And the purpose for the whole thing is to let people know that if you are having this communication with, with a loved one between here and beyond the veil, you're not alone. Don't feel like you're alone. Don't feel like you're crazy. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you. Don't feel like you're delusional. This happens to millions and millions of people every day, except a lot of people are afraid to talk about it because they're afraid that their friends and family will think they've lost their minds, to which I say, good, because <laughs> this is not about your mind. This is about your heart. And we talk about that a lot in the, in, in the book, which is the, the language of the heart, which is the language of feeling and emotion is very different from your spoken language. The brain and the heart are two completely different things, and they operate completely differently. The, there was a movie many years ago in which one of the characters had a fantastic line about that, in which she said, the heart is a mysterious organ. It plays by its own rules. And it does. And it can be disorienting because it's not about logic. It's not about reason. It's not about, it's about feeling. It's about love. And when I look back on my life, I realize that that has been, this is the culmination of my life's work. That we now are having this experience, Lauren and I, together. And we will have this experience until we're reunited on the other side of the veil. It's an incredible instance of life imitating art in a way and it's it's just mind-blowing your story Stephen and I'm so thrilled that you can share it with us today on the show I just marvel and one of the aspects of your story that I really love and I touched on it before is just your dedication to honoring what you know has to be birthed through you so whether it's uh, this beautiful book with Lauren, whether it's this incredible film, What Dreams May Come, that has a place in so many hearts. I mean, as you said, that took you 20 years. What staying power you have there, Stephen? What what got you through all those years? What There was obviously something driving you. As you said, you knew that filmmaking was what you were here for and you have that incredible heritage and it's in your blood, clearly. But what kept you going through 20 long, hard years of trying to get a project up off the ground? Because I think so many of our audience members will relate to that feeling too. You know, I the best answer I could give you for that is that I just somehow or another knew I had to. That it, this is just part of my journey and that I had to make both Somewhere in Time and What Dreams May Come. There were other movies that I wanted to do. But these are the ones I know and I knew at the time that I had to get out into the world. And, you know, neither one of them are considered mainstream films, nor should they be. They, they require a certain suspension of traditional belief. They are both uh, deliriously romantic movies, and there are people that are not are, are somewhat turned off by that and call it sentimental uh, which to which I say, what the heck is wrong with sentimental? Exactly. Boy, we need more sentiment in the oh world. Oh my gosh, that is so true. You and, know, we yeah. need more feeling in the world. <laughs> oh, we yes. need more people 
their hearts in the world. And we need people to know what love is. And, you know, one of the things that I've also learned in these last three and a half years is what grief is. I, I've never been in a position, fortunately in my life, I never was in a position where I really was hit with the kind of grief that, that I faced after Lauren transitioned. And uh, you may know there's been a lot of work done on grief in the last few years, and it's evolved, and the way people uh, deal with it has evolved because it used to be people saying, you know what, just give it some time, get over it, you know, move on. And it's like, no, 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 you don't. The best, the best thing I have ever heard or read about grief was really simple. Grief lasts as long as love does. And I believe that. You know, I know that there are still moments and there are moments, I'm not going to say they happen every day now, but they happen three, four, three, four or five times a week when I will watch, I'll be driving somewhere and I'll see a couple holding hands walking down the street and I'll just, the tears will come because as much as Lauren is here and she is here a lot and we have a tell between us that I know exactly when she's here. Although Lauren often corrects me and says, you know, when I want you to know I'm there, <laughs> there are times that I just check in on you and, and I just want to just see how you're doing and know how you're doing. And, but she's here and we, we, we deal with each other a lot. Uh, there have been some very difficult things that have happened in our family as there have been with all families the last 18 months in the world. And Lauren's very present for that. She's very conscious for that. A couple of the kids, one in particular, we have five adult kids. <laughs> the youngest is 24, but you know, they can get into their 40s and 50s and they're still going to be kids to us. We have maybe two of them. One of them particularly has a very, very strong ongoing relationship with Lauren. And another one has some, and the other ones are still trying to get themselves oriented to it and aren't as open to it, which is fine. But it has been a, a joy and an honor for me. And I will tell you the emails that I get from people who have read the book, because there is a section in the book where I give people my email address and say, if you've read the book and you wanna be in touch with me about your experience, this is how you can reach me directly. No one else will read the emails. I will not ever let anybody else see them. They'll be completely personal. And the, the stories that I have been uh, honored to share with people and the relief that people feel that I've actually done this and that I, I went through this experience and that Lauren and I are together and that we wrote this book, it really it echoes with so many people, Karina, because this is going on all the time. Yes, yes, I know. And a I, rare occurrence. Oh, yeah, I want to actually get into in, into detail about that, Stephen, and I've actually interviewed a gentleman called Jorge, a lovely, lovely man who shares a, a similar story in many respects to yours. And I agree with you that this seems to be something that's coming up more and more. But before we get into all of that, I'd like you to share with us, please, Stephen, just a bit more about Lauren and what she's like. We've gotten a little glimpse of her through what you've told us so far, but I wondered if you could just touch on her personality and the years that you had together in the physical and also your mutual understanding that you were, quote unquote, this, this is your term with Lauren, interwoven souls, which I think is so beautiful. 
Oh, I'd be more than happy to. We can spend the rest of this time talking about Lauren if you want. That would make me very happy. <laughs> She'll be thinking, oh, you know what, you guys can talk about something else because that's who she is. When Lauren and I met, I was 57. She had just turned 40. We had both had two very unsuccessful marriages, but got wonderful kids out of our marriages. Um, we had both decided that we were never going to get married again. I always used to tell my kids that I may not even date again, but if I do, I certainly will not be dating a woman with young children because I, I raised um, our kids on my own for almost 15 years. And when they grew up and moved out, at least temporarily, I was ready to do something else. Well, of course, what happened? And Lauren was in exactly the same position. So what happened? I was living in Ashland. Lauren was actually living uh, where I live now in the Portland, Oregon area. And there was a revival, a one-night revival in 2003 of what dreams may come at a very famous Art Deco theater in a little town called Gresham, uh, which is a suburb of Portland. And I was invited to come speak, and I didn't want to do it because I was editing a film. I was editing Indigo at that time. Um, I, I really didn't feel like coming up to Portland, but I was just compelled to do it. And a friend told Lauren about this, and Lauren found out that I had also uh, produced Somewhere in Time, which was one of her favorite films that she had ever seen. And Lauren decided to go to the screening. Lauren told me there were twice during her drive there that she almost turned around and went home. Because she's like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What is the point of this? Why I need to go home and be with the kids. She had a babysitter. And I didn't really want to, I, I loved being there because I loved sharing the film, but I didn't really want to be there that night. Well, our higher selves got us there. I was standing in the lobby of the theater. I saw the profile from about three quarters of her uh, up from the side of Lauren's face. And I was very compelled and I walked up to her. And when she turned around and we looked at each other, now it seemed to both of us that it went on for minutes. We just stared at each other. And it probably was 10 seconds, but it seemed like minutes. But what we talked about later is that we both had the exact same feeling. <gasps> Thank God we found each other on the night we were supposed to. <gasps> this is when we were supposed to meet. That's her. That was my feeling. Her feeling was, that's him. She went home that night, called her surrogate mom, Peggy, and said, I found him, Peggy. I found him. He's here. And I said the same thing to my kids. We started to date, and it was very clear that we had meant to be together for a very long time, and we laughed a lot about that night of meeting in Gresham, a place and a theater that neither one of us had ever been to before or since. We laughed about the resistance that we had to being there, and we both decided that our higher selves and our guides deserved a two-week vacation in Tahiti for, for, for getting us there, and... Honestly, you know, the, the, the five kids combined basically seamlessly, which is unusual, particularly when you have, you know, adult kids. My kids were very used to just having me. Her kids were very used to just having her. 
they be, all became best friends. We all, we both considered that we had five kids and still do. And our relationship was basically we spent 24 seven with each other. Lauren worked out of the house. I worked out of the house. I didn't ever want to be apart from her. She did not want to be apart from me. And we didn't socialize a lot. We just wanted to be together. Now, looking back on it, I think part of that was that we both had a subconscious understanding and it was probably something that our soul leaked through to us that we needed to take advantage of all the time we had. Um, looking back on it, I think we both had a subconscious understanding that it was not going to be the future that we had planned because she wasn't going to be physical for that long. And I'm glad that we did that. Lauren, oh gosh, how do I describe Lauren? Lauren wrote a book called When You Feel Like Strangling the Patient, which was her experience after I had a heart attack in 2011, which we should also talk about, mm. because my heart stopped four different times, which was Lauren's terror when we got married. Um, it was the one thing she was afraid of. And she said, you just have to take care of yourself, honey, because, you know, we need to be together as long as we can. And unfortunately, I didn't do a great job of that. And my heart stopped twice in the house. They had to revive me once in the in the ambulance and once as they were wheeling me into the hospital. And as was explained to me later, if your heart stops four times in an episode like that, you have less than a 1% chance of surviving. But I did because it was that was not the time for me to go, but it did really have a very deep effect on Lauren, a very deep effect on Lauren. I want to parenthetically say something about that moment when you realize, again, that there are no accidents in life. There are no coincidences in life. Everything is there for a reason. Um, so I told you we would send out four movies a month from the Spiritual Cinema Circle, three shorts and a feature. Mm -hmm. November 3rd of 2011 was the first week of November, which is when we always sent out the DVDs to our subscribers. I recorded discussions with people about those films about two months earlier because we were always two or three months ahead so I had the, the heart attack on November 3rd, and when Lauren was with me in um, the ICU, it all of a sudden occurred to me that the feature that we had just sent to our subscribers was called Listen to Your Heart. Oh, my goodness. This is unbelievable. And <laughs> volume 11, 2000 and what was it? Uh, 11. 2011, volume 11, 2011, oh, yeah, uh, listen to your heart. So, you know, none of this has been an accident. I feel incredibly privileged. Lauren is a, when she was physical, is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful woman in every way, very loving to her family and to friends, and very funny, very private. She really did not talk a lot about the things that she did for other people, but uh, Lauren is a kind, loving, funny, frisky, <laughs> uh, adventuresome soul uh, who I know is soaring very high with the other angels. 
Oh, thank you so much for sharing some of your beautiful Lauren with us today. This is it's I'm just so so enjoying this conversation, Stephen. And I just have to note how interwoven, speaking of interwoven souls and we'll go into that more, but how interwoven is your story with the story of film and filmmaking? Because well, there's that moment that you just shared with us about the day of your heart attack, eleven three eleven or as we would say here, yep. three, three, eleven, eleven, and yep. and the film that you sent out, listen to your heart, and then just backtracking to the night that you met Lauren, the linchpin there was your movie. What dreams have may come? That was what drew yeah. Lauren there. That was what drew you there to that night. So then, when we think back to that drive of yours, you just had to get it made. Twenty years in the making. That. It seems like that might have been why. So you could meet that night. Well, I'm sure that that's true. I mean, everything um, we you brought up the part, the the aspect of interwoven souls, which is something that Lauren and I very much are. I mean, we have been together so many different times. I mean, so many different times, and we were conscious of those. And actually, because Lauren did um, past life regressions, she actually regressed me. Um, at time, once, twice she did that to previous lives that we had had together. And it has been a very, very, very long time. Not every lifetime were we together. Not every lifetime were we man and woman. Not every lifetime were we romantically linked. At times we were friends. I'm sure there are times we were foes. But we were, we were together for a very, very long time. And we became aware of that. And you know, when I go back to Lauren after we met, when Lauren saw somewhere in time, Lauren was 17 years old when it came out. She insisted a year later that her college boyfriend take her to Mackinac Island in Michigan where we shot the film. She was incredibly drawn to it. Same thing happened with What Dreams May Come. It actually even happened with All the Right Moves, which was a a movie I produced with Tom Cruise in the 80s, she felt compelled that she had to watch it. There was a, I always knew she was out there. She always knew I was out there, but we didn't know who, who the individual was. But we knew that there was somebody that we came here to meet. And even though I think we both probably got very discouraged a couple of different times, we both kept at it. And then we met that magical night. It's wonderful. And among her messages that um, have flooded in and have now become the, the content of your lovely book, one of them was she, she actually said, she said, this was our plan all along. She told you that. Yes. And yes. I, I wondered what you have come to learn since then, or perhaps it seems like you were building on what you already knew about concepts such as pre-birth planning, soul contracts, twin flames, that kind of thing? Well, it's certainly, I, I, I will tell you what it has done. It, 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 I think the word that comes to mind for me is that it has reinforced those feelings. Yes. You know, I, I grew up with a sense of the magic. You know, after my, um, my father died and he died right before my fifth birthday and my mother remarried and we moved, I was around six. And I was very conscious and I told my mother and my stepfather, there's a man in my wall at night. 
I mean, I vividly remember this, and my sister vividly remembers it too. I was very aware that there was a man, I thought, in the wall, because that's how I related to him, and he almost every night was there, and it was very comforting. It didn't scare me. It was very comforting. Well, I now know that was my dad, my dad's spirit, who was there to support me during that that period of time. So I started this very young. And I've done, obviously, a lot of reading about it. Movies have been such a great reflection of how we're all growing in our awareness of the fact that we don't just live and then die, and that's it. There is more. That is the, the ad line for what dreams may come as a film. After life, there is more. Once you are introduced to that, and once that comes clear to you, it changes everything. It changes your perceptions of things. It changes your perception of death. You know, I know that that January 3rd, 2018 was Lauren's soul time to transition. I have a time, too. I have no clue what it is. I'm pretty sure that Lauren has no clue what it is. And if she had a clue what it is, she wouldn't tell me. Thank God, because that's the last thing I'd want to know. But I don't think she would. So that is a soul contract that we have had. And we also talked about all of the times we've been back. But I'm I'm hoping and believing that it won't be again, because we kind of both thought this was going to be the last go around. And maybe it won't. But I know time does not exist in the same way obviously on the other side of the veil. So what I'm saying now is a bit foolish, but I, it, it's the only way I can express it. I don't know what's intended, but I'm going to spend the first 200 years hugging her. That's what, that's going to be the first 200 earth years. <laughs> I'm just going to hug her. That's it. Then we can talk about everything else. So beautiful. I, I just feel that you, you were so privileged to have the physical time together, the physical relationship with Lauren when she was here on the planet. Of course, it continues to be beautiful, but how how absolutely astounding and, and what an immense blessing that you shared that kind of love here together on the earth. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I, I will tell you something else because I just got a, a, a sense that I needed to do this. Um, you know, everybody has issues, right? I mean, we all have issues that we come in with, issues that our childhood causes and things that we have to evolve from. And mine was always abandonment. And if you go back into my life, and it's not important to go through all the details now, but abandonment, particularly by people I love, particularly by women I love, abandonment has been the major issue of my life, emotional issue. And when Lauren transitioned, you would think that that would be the last straw. It wound up being completely the opposite, which shocked me because I never felt that Lauren was gone. I knew she was physically gone. And even those first six weeks when we were not in communication, I I just knew she wasn't gone. I knew eventually something was going to happen. And I never felt abandoned by her. When you would think that that would be potentially the biggest abandonment of my life. And I haven't ever felt that for a second. So when you have these kinds of contracts, it's pretty extraordinary. Do, Do you know, 
Do you know or know of um, the medium Alison Dubois? Yes. Yes, I've actually, in, many years ago I interviewed her, not for my podcast, it was for the magazine that I worked for at the time, yes. Okay, so for your listeners who don't know, um, Alison is an extraordinary medium and her her medium of mediumship, which is a mouthful, but but basically she is very much in touch with people who have crossed over. And um, Allison is a friend of ours, a friend of mine. And when this all happened, I and Allison and I spoke, uh, and I was telling her what I felt. She read the book and stuff like that. She said, Stephen, you guys have the most clear communication. And you know what? I, I don't need to tell you anything because you guys clearly know what's going on between the two of you. And you clearly had this plan and you're following it. So you just need to trust your heart. You need to trust your wife, trust your heart, and there's nothing I can add to that. And that was very comforting for me, and it is really true. You know, when you find that one, and we don't always find it in life, as she said to me, you know, and when because at one point she said to me, and I know she was testing me, she said, well, you know, can you see yourself being with anybody else? And I said, are you kidding? There is no prayer of that. To find the one and to be together with that one, there is never going to be a two because everything would be an anticlimax and I would never be able to open my heart or, or anything else to another person. And she laughed and she said, that's one of the reasons why I know you guys are such close soulmates because every time I have dealt with somebody who feels that way, they say it and they live it, which is when you find that great love, there is no love after it. Now, I was 71 when Lauren transitioned. So, you know, if I was 31, there might have been a difference. But, you know, Lauren and other people have said to me, you know, she and I, I know you wanted to talk about this and this might be a time to start it mm. about how we love and not giving up on the kind of love that we have and really understanding how special it is and understanding that this is what we came here to do and knowing that we will be together again at the end, I have lost any fear of death. I have, I can't say that I had it anyway, but I have no fear of death anymore. Uh, I just at some point know that we will, our souls our soul will be re reconnected and reunited, so we, we will be together. We both have individual souls, but they're interwoven. Okay. I'd actually like to just quickly reference a few more of the ways, and you, you express this so beautifully in your book, that the ways that Lauren communicates with you, and I love how you call it wifey Wi-Fi. That's, that's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why Alison Dubois said you didn't need her because obviously – you know, your, your connection is spot on. That Wi-Fi connection is working perfectly. But so you describe her uh, in various ways. So there's a warm, dazzling light. There's a mist. There's the, the new way that she hugs you. You said, you know, you'd be spending 200 years just hugging when she's got a way to hug you right now. Uh, there's her energy flowing through you. There was a time you flew off together and you were briefly in the afterlife. It's just so beautiful. Is there any particular communication or moment with Lauren since she's transitioned that really stands out for you, Stephen, that is the most memorable? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, you've brought up a couple of them. 
she let me have a very, very brief glimpse, and I mean brief, of how she is now. And I, I, I was stunned at the, the beauty of it and the majesty of it. Um, she has also, there, there have been times when she will come in and hug me, sit on my lap and hug me in such a way that I really feel transported. And I, she gave me a very brief, brief sense, I shouldn't say look, sense of what that afterlife that she and I meticulously designed together, what it looks like. She's also let me know that she will be here until I'm there with her. And she is, I'm trying now and it's not easy for me, but I'm trying now to not call on her as much because I know that she, she has work to do and she and the other angels, you know, they're, they don't sit around eating bonbons. She has work to do. And I, I don't want to interfere with that. Then at the same time, it's knowing that she's here when I need her that makes everything worthwhile for me because if I didn't know that, I don't know how I'd be getting through this. And along those lines, one of the messages that she's shared with you, and I know this from reading it in the book, is that it's okay to laugh. And you you referenced earlier those moments of, of profound grief, which are becoming fewer and further between now, but where you would just be in, in such pits of suffering and anybody who's lost someone will obviously relate to those moments. But there's that message from Lauren that it's okay to laugh and to try to find joy in the ways that you honour her and that, in fact, that is how she prefers it. So when I, when I read that, that reminded me of mediums that I've interviewed who've shared that exact message with me, that our late loved ones want more than anything else to know that we're, we're laughing and happy, that we're joyous. Do you believe, Stephen, this is something that struck me reading about this in your book, do you believe that if we really took that on board, that idea about what our late loved ones want for us, and that is our joy, that if we took that on board, it could revolutionise our understanding of grief and healing and, you know, because it is a very countercultural teaching, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because for those of us who are in grief and, and understand grief, and again, that's hundreds of millions of people around the world, obviously the grief itself is no laughing matter. And um, it is uh, difficult and it's painful and it changes forms and strengths, but it never completely disappears. And I know that that experience is really, it, it's, a, it's a very painful, difficult experience for me and for everybody who goes through it. I'm no different from anybody else in that. However, however, I found after a while that it was that the communication with Lauren was a lot easier when I was more hopeful that she really could jump in. She was always there to hold me, to commiserate with me, the lack of a better word. But it was at the times when we would joke, okay, when we would laugh about things when I would get excited about something that was happening with one of our kids, when 
I was walking um, our dog and enjoying being outside and stuff like that, or watching a movie that I loved or watching the sports that I loved watching. That's when Lauren really, I, I know, enjoyed and was present because she really, really, really wants me to be as happy as I can possibly be while I'm here. And her feeling about all of this and the way she communicates it to me, which is, you know, honey, physically I'm not there and I know that's a challenge, but that's the only way I'm not there. That's the only way. I'm here. I love you. I see you. I know what's going on with you. I'm here. So you don't have to miss me. As at one point she said, by the way, probably a good idea not to tell people because early on I said, well, we lost her. And early on she said, don't, don't say that. You didn't lose me. I'm gone physically, but you didn't lose me. And I was like, yeah, I shouldn't be using that phraseology. So, um, you know, I learned a lot from that. And I realized that Lauren really wants me to be happy. And I also know that if I did decide that I was going to date someone, that she'd be very happy for me if I could be happy doing that. Now, I don't want to do it. And as a friend of mine once said to me, there's no jealousy on the other side, Stephen. There's no jealousy. You know, she, she would be very happy for you. And I know for sure that she's happiest for me and with me when I'm feeling more encouraged. Like I'm really enjoying this interview with you and she is all around me and is smiling and is nodding and because I'm enjoying this and she wants me to enjoy it. And I, I think that's what, when you say, could it revolutionize things? Of course it could. When people, and, and people who have this communication and have the same depth of communication that we have, and again, I want to make it clear, we are not special, we are not rare, we are not gifted, we are not anything. We are people. And people have these relationships all over the world all day, 365 days a year, just like we do. I think when people become aware of that and the fact that the veil between the worlds is thinning, and I, I, I don't think you have to go farther than to look at popular culture and see the films and television shows that have been made about this subject over the last many, many years, people are accepting this more and more and more. It gets difficult because of people's belief systems. People have asked me to describe in detail what it's like where Lauren is. And I said, first of all, I don't know. I don't ask. I see at times little glimpses, but this is not something that we need to know right now. It's important that we know that our, our loved ones are there that they're connecting with us, that they will be there at the end. I know that, that Lauren is going to be, <laughs> as our friend Peggy has said, you know, she will be, have her face and her hands and her entire body pressed up against that veil to be as close as she can so she can grab you um, when you come through. And it, it's very comforting for me. And I think when, when we accept those things, life looks different. And love looks different. Indeed. In your book, Stephen, you write that 
this is all an unfolding journey for you that you're still learning and that Lauren can only really communicate what your human heart and mind can absorb. So it is an unfolding thing. I was wondering, what do you think are the most powerful messages that Lauren has shared to do with the big questions around life? So around love, suffering, the purpose, the very purpose of our incarnation as humans on earth. You know, um, it's very personal to her and to me. When I say that, we don't, Lauren and I, when she was physical, shared a very, an identical belief about what happens after we physically transition. And this was the, the absolute center of what dreams may come. It was the center of the film. That which you think becomes your world. That is a plaque that Richard Matheson had on his wall, and he had a, he had a copy of it made for me. That we, this gets into a whole different line of discussion <clears throat> that we create our own reality and that everybody creates their life as it unfolds. I told a story in the book, which I'm going to tell here again, because I think it's so illustrative of this. And then we'll get back to the, to the powerful message about what happens after life. But when I say we planned all of this, that there are no accidents, I was told an incredible story once, a wonderful metaphor. And the way it was set up is this. Let's say that you're between lives and you're going to have another incarnation. You go out in the morning, morning in quotes, to a running track and you start setting up the hurdles and the goals and the obstacles that you and your soul and your higher self believe you need to address in your next incarnation. And you go around the entire track and you set up hurdles here, there, this one's gonna be low, this one's gonna be high, these are gonna be closer together, this is gonna be more. And when you finish, you're born and you start around that track. And you spend a lot of your life getting really irritated at the idiot who put those obstacles so close together. <laughs> That's great. Okay. <laughs> because it's us. Well, we felt that too. You know, Oprah had a wonderful saying that there are many pathways to God. This is something that we believe as well. This is a touchy subject for a lot of people, but we're at a place, I think, in human existence where we need to really address this because... What is wrong? What could possibly be wrong if we do create our own lives, we create what we're supposed to do, we make mistakes, but we, we keep going. Why isn't creating your own reality the same thing in the afterlife, which is what we did in What Dreams May Come? So there is only creation and there is only life. And it just goes on. That, absolutely. Yeah. And that we, why can't? Why can't a Muslim have the same experience in the afterlife that is a part of his religion, her religion, in life? And then why can't a, an evangelical Christian have the afterlife experience that is part of their belief system? You know, there isn't a space problem on the other side of the veil, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's not like, I'm going to have to stay here or what? I mean... It isn't that way. 
And for those of us who do not necessarily believe in a particular religion, the spirituality that we have, we experience things in a different way. This is what we did in What Dreams May Come. This was not my idea. This is Richard Matheson, one of the most brilliant writers and thinkers of all time. This was him. This was his setting up of what happened in Dreams, which is Chris, played by Robin, wakes up in this painted world, which is his wife's paintings, and where he always felt incredibly comfortable. I mean, how that got accomplished is a whole other story. But And Annie, played by Annabella Sciorra, is in a very different place of her own choosing. I mean, my goodness, did we ever go through controversy. And it broke my heart because we were very conscious that we were going to be facing a situation where people might feel that what we say in the film is that suicides go to hell. That is absolutely not what we did. It is not in the film. There were people who saw it that way who were very hurt by it, which just broke my heart because we made it very clear through the Cuba Gooding character that this was a choice that every human being makes and Annie has chosen to be where she is. That's what she's chosen. It's not anything that's been imposed upon her. There's no set rule. But when you look at that and you see where she was and where, where, where Robin was, it really reinforces the idea that not only do we create our own reality in life, but we can create whatever afterlife experience we believe is part of our system. And if you believe that that is God and your definition of God, then that is what you'll have. And if you believe it's something else, then you'll have that. What is wrong with that belief system? Because when you, when you think about it, think of all of the heartache and the tragedy that has happened throughout centuries when one group claims to be the only pathway to God, that we are the, the one true God. There are no, if you don't believe the way we believe, then you're damned to go to hell. I don't believe that that is the way the universe is set up, and I don't believe that that's the way the universe works, and I certainly know that's not the way love works. But I say believe because these are all matters of faith, and we can't prove them or disprove them, but we live them. And that, for me, to get back to the original question that you asked me, the fact that we all have a different experience and can have a different experience according to our own belief system when we uh, cross over, to me is, I think, one of the most exciting and comforting things that I have learned in these last few years. There's so much to chew on there. You touched on the idea of free will and choice, and that's something that is very apparent in the near-death experience, which I study a lot and listen to a lot of accounts. So many people who've had NDEs come back and they say, well, even in the hellish ones, actually, quote-unquote hellish ones, the negative ones, there's a sense that they've placed themselves because of the state of fear that they were in prior to the NDE in that negative state. But the message that's always apparent to me in listening to these experiences is that there is always help available, support. We have to ask because our free will cannot be violated. That's the sense that I get listening to all of these experiences in the NDEs. Oh, I, 
completely agree with you. I totally agree with you. And the other interesting thing is that NDEs often liken life to a movie role that we're playing, which is really interesting given our conversation, given, given all of your body of work, everything that you've done in film across the decades. These people, many of them who've had NDEs, say that we're living a role that we've scripted, which is similar to the analogy of placing our own hurdles, but then we forget that we've scripted it and that all of the people in our lives are supporting characters in our lives. What, what an amazing thing to think of when we think of your life your experiences with Lauren, your films, life-changing films that you've made. It is an incredible, this is a, again, this is a, this could go on for days, this conversation, because there's so much to discuss about it. But when, if we accept the things that you and I have been talking about, that we do create our own reality, we are now in the world of quantum physics today. And I touch on this a little bit in the book. I did a, a good deal of that chapter on my own because I was getting into territory that um, I knew Lauren did not feel comfortable getting into with me. So it's something that I did. She knew it and she, uh, and she supported me in it, but it's something that I did because I felt that my work in film uh, demanded that I do that. Do you know in quantum physics today, the entire focus is on, is this world that we live in really real? Is this the real world? What a question. Or is the other side the real world? And, you know, this is not a question I think we will ever answer as human beings. I'm not sure we're ever going to be while we are living this human experience, it's here for a reason. But I can tell you, when you look at film, there have been a lot of hints about this. You know, perhaps the best known is the Matrix movies. You know, that, this, that the world we walk in around in is not the, quote, real world, unquote. It is the world on the other side, the spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Is this a simulation of some sort that we're living? We don't know the answers to these questions, but the fact that a lot of people, including people in the quantum physics world, are asking these questions because they've already seen. I mean, we just have to look at our own, look at life. Look at somebody, look at two people who are sadly diagnosed with cancer, one of whom just feels like that's it, I'm done, and they are done. And the other who says, I don't care what this is. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to beat it. Now, they don't always, but they often do. But rarely do you defeat it when you believe that you're done. What happens to those people? I mean, I had a dear friend who was told he had three months to live because he had a cancerous tumor in his stomach that was so intertwined with his organs, they couldn't take it out. He was 28 years old. He looked at the doctors and he said, what are you afraid? You're afraid you're going to kill me? He just told me I have three months to live. Take the damn thing out. I'm not going to die. And he didn't because he never saw himself as dying. Now, that doesn't always work because it's not, we don't know what our journey is. Our souls do. And it may be that we came to this life with that was going to be the end of this life. It was going to be some kind of a disease or an accident. I mean, this stuff gets very um, complex within itself. 
And it also gets complex because we're never going to get on this side of the veil any kind of proof, you know, that that happens. That's right. We just have to believe what we believe. It's through the glass darkly on this side. So correct. speaking of films and quotes from films are peppered all throughout your book, I just wanted to bring up one which I love. It's from the 2013 movie Oblivion, and this is in your book. If we have souls, they are made of the love we share, undimmed by time, unbound by death. I just thought that was exquisite, and I just wanted to point it out one to the, you. <laughs> one of the best lines ever, ever, ever in a film. It's, it comes very near the end of the film. It's a narration that Tom Cruise does, and I made a film with Tom many, many years ago, and um, after I saw Oblivion, which I saw several times, and I think if you see the film, you'll understand, and it was, it was right before Lauren transitioned. It was before Lauren even got sick. There was something in it that really spoke to me. It, for people who haven't seen the film, you're going to think it's a big science fiction action movie because that's unfortunately the way it was originally marketed. It's a love story, and it's an amazing and I mean an amazing love story. And I really urge people to see it. When we get those messages, we're talking to ourselves. I mean, that's the universal subconscious, the universal unconscious, talking to ourselves about, think about this with life. Think about this. What, what, how does this resonate with you? And I know with some people it doesn't, and I completely respect that. And I know that there are people who think, I'm completely whacked out that I created all of this, not with Lauren, just on my own to make myself feel better. And I I can't argue with them because I can't objectively prove that they're wrong, which is what faith is all about. But I know what I believe. And I also know that this has been my work on this planet You know, nothing I've really ever done as far as my work is concerned can be considered a mainstream film. And that's fine. Because when you make a big mainstream film, you really can't do something controversial. Because mainstream means it can't be challenging in any kind of significant way to a broad general audience. And uh, What Dreams May Come and Somewhere in Time, I mean, you should have read some of the reviews of Somewhere in Time. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we were just ripped left, right, and center about how corny and blah, blah, blah. And the film didn't do great business, but it was rescued years later when it went on video and when it went on HBO. And now there is every year a weekend at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island where we shot that film. There's a weekend coming up next month, actually, that is entirely devoted to Summer in Time. And the fan club for Summer in Time which is from all around the world, comes to the hotel and celebrates the film. And it started off being just ripped to shreds and failing and stuff like that. So, you know, we're doing, I I think, what we need to do to be comforting to people who have this belief system, who are open to it. And people who aren't, I completely respect and send them much love. Well, I'd just love to commend you on your work within films because Hollywood is so influential. It's what you have done strikes me as being ahead of your time with those films 
and just such an act of service, you know, knowing, using that medium for good and and later your work with the spiritual circle as well, really bringing those films to people's attention. I just I just wanted to commend you for that, Stephen, because I wish there were more voices like yours within Hollywood and within mainstream filmmaking to perhaps transform that idea of what a mainstream film is and should be. So thank you for everything. Uh, you're more than welcome, and I, I, I want to say something <clears throat> actually about that. You know, Hollywood has, um, has e- in my opinion, devolved over the years for a m- whole bunch of different reasons. Perhaps the most important of which is that over the last 20, 25 years, every single studio in Hollywood has been bought and is now owned by a major international conglomeration. And um, the studios are being run by business people. That's why there's such a lack of creativity, because you want to do something different and you can't point to, well, it worked in this movie, it worked in that movie, you're going to do something different the marketing people are going to say, we can't sell that. I, 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 I always tell people, and it's a, a true story, that Louis B. Mayer of um, MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, he made a decision on the movies. And if somebody in his marketing department said, Mr. Mayer, we don't know how to market that, he would say, well, in your next job, I hope you'll learn because that's what you're paid to do. You're paid to market the films that we as creative people decide to make. You don't get to decide what we make. We get to decide what we make, and you figure out a way to get it out there. Well, you can see with all of the violence and the darkness, and <laughs> I don't know if, yeah. if Bill Maher is well-known or known at all in Australia. He's an American comedian. Yes, I'd say he, yeah, people would know him. All right, so Bill Maher did a whole rant a few weeks ago about Hollywood and this year and the movies that were nominated for Academy Awards. And he had an amazing line. He said, everyone's depressed. We've been stuck in our houses for over a year. Everyone's afraid of dying. Do you think you guys could maybe make a movie every once in a while that doesn't make me want to take a bath with a toaster? (laughs) And I think a testament to that is the enduring appeal of your films, of Somewhere in Time, the fans going to the weekend once a year, the the great love that people have for whenever I mention what dreams may come. I've got um, friends who just, you know, who will watch that over and over. It's got a powerful place in people's hearts. And I think that's really beautiful. And I'm with Bill. Like if only we could have more filmmakers of your ilk, Stephen, to create more movies like that. I hope we will. I hope we will going forward. You know, we're certainly not going to know what the effects of this international pandemic have been on, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically, psychically, uh, spiritually. We won't know that for many, many, many years. But I hope that one of the things that will come out of this is a feeling that we are not alone, that our loved ones are still accessible to us, that we do go through life in soul groups, that love never dies. It changes form, but it never dies. And I I hope that that uplifts people. Um, Certainly for the rest of, of my life, as I said, I am going to be trying to expose this. I'm very grateful to you, uh, Karina, for spending this time with me and, and being so wonderful in the questions that you've asked, which have really 
stimulated me to think and feel about certain things that, um, that I love doing. I love doing this. And if we have reached one person today who says, oh my goodness, I've been experiencing this. I thought I was crazy. There are a lot of other people who are feeling this. I can now feel more comfortable about talking about it and I accept it. And I now know that it's real and I don't have to worry about it anymore. If that happens to one person because of this call, then we've had a really successful call. How beautiful. And I'm sure that we can believe that that's the case, Stephen. I'm so delighted to have spoken with you today. I'm so excited to get this conversation out there. Before we wind up today, please tell the audience how they can learn more about you and where they can go to buy your book. Sure. Um, thank you for that. Uh, we have a, a website, uh, whatdreamshavecome.com. Again, that's whatdreamshavecome.com. Uh, the link to Amazon uh, is there. The book is for sale exclusively on Amazon because we self-published it. And I know you're aware of this, and I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it too. Amazon has a fantastic self-publishing program, yes, which is really extraordinary. And it gives people a chance to get a book like this you know, when your last name is not Kardashian and you can't get a major publisher <laughs> to do something, when you write something that isn't mainstream, um, you can get it out into the world without anybody in, the, you know, in between you and the audience. So the book is available on Amazon and there's a, a, some more information uh, on whatdreamshavecome.com. Thank you so much, Stephen. Is there any uh, last messages you'd like to leave for us today before we end our conversation? I, I would think the most important thing is that, as I've said a few times, love does not die. It can't die. It's eternal. It is the motivating source of the universe. Love cannot die. Your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your child, God forbid, all of the people that you know, who you love, who transition, they are around. You can connect with them. It is not impossible to do. If you feel it in your heart and you really believe that you can make that contact, you can make that contact and it, it can change everything for you. And I hope that you will because the people who have preceded us love us with all their hearts and they want us to be happy and they want us to continue to evolve in this magical, magical environment that we have chosen to evolve in. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm so honored to have spoken to you today. Thank you so much, Karina. This has been great, great fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Have an experience you'd like to share with me? Get in touch at my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story.